So good, right? Incredible. And we wanted to show this because it really sums up perfectly and beautifully what we've been looking at over the past few weeks together at, at reimagining the church and being the body and being the building and doing his work and then today being the bride. I'm really excited to be up here sharing with you today. Not that I'm not excited every time I get to be up here sharing with you. Um, I truly love and appreciate the opportunity to break open up the word. But today we're breaking out revelation. It's a huge and important and beautiful passage of scripture. And so I'm excited to share that with you. So we're talking reimagining church. Still this morning, this is the last word in this series, in this church-focused Series, and so we're specifically looking together today how the church is the bride of Christ. And I've grown in my own understanding um, of what this metaphor means, and so that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited to share with you what I have learned and how I've grown to understand this passage of Scripture. Now, I spent a lot of time at home this week. Our daughter was sick, unfortunately. And so we were sitting around the table a lot. She was doing schoolwork and I was preparing my sermon. And so it worked out quite nicely. We could share the space, but do our work together. And uh, as I was getting started on my sermon, I just asked her, Holly, what do you think it means to be the bride of Christ? And she looked at me with kind of a blank, well, like this. This is what happens when you're a pastor's kid. <laughs> you get asked these kinds of questions at the table, and then you get, okay, hold that thought. I want to take a picture for my, for my presentation on Sunday. <laughs> so I asked her, Holly, what do you think it means to be the bride of Christ? And she said, I, I don't know. I've never heard that before. And I said, okay, well, well, now you have. Like, God's word tells us that we are the bride of Christ. What do you think that means? And she's just and I'm like, Hallie, just take a guess, like anything. And she's like, I don't know. Leave me alone. Like, Fair enough. Okay, you stick with your math and I'll stick with, <laughs> with my sermon here. But so interesting enough, then I started to think back to my Sunday school days. Okay, well, I don't think I really learned about being the bride of Christ quite either in Sunday school. So where did I, when did I learn this, this term? Where did I come upon this? And I guess it was just on my own reading the Bible over the years. Um, and honestly, I never really thought about what this meant until much later in my Christian journey. And way after seminary, even, I think for a long time, I just accepted that this was a metaphor. And Jesus uses this um, metaphor, this marriage metaphor, as an example because it's the ultimate and most special um, covenanted relationship. Right? That's what... That's what marriage is. And so, you know, for, for God to say this is what it means to be the bride of Christ, it's, I equate it to, I equated it to just the love and, and just how that relationship is covenanted and so special and so deeply rooted in love. And so, yes, that's true, but there is way more for us to understand <clears throat> about this this morning. And so maybe you can relate so far here this morning to either never hearing this term before 
um, never reading it before, or maybe you're like I was not that long ago, just assuming, accepting um, that this term, this marriage metaphor symbolizes Jesus Christ's deep love for us. And maybe you already have a deeper understanding of what we're talking about today. I want nothing more than to share God's heart here. So no matter where we fall on the spectrum of our understanding of this term, the Bride of Christ, this morning, um, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would just unite us all in these moments together, illuminating this text, this passage in a way that will help us all experience God's heart for us together. Okay, so the Bride of Christ. Where do we hear this term in Scripture? We heard it from our passage. Kathy read that for us. Thank you so much, Kathy, for doing that. Um, But we we do come upon it in other places. Paul actually refers to this metaphor in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, he says this. And this is from the Amplified Translation. Husbands, love your wives. Seek the highest good for her and surround her with a caring, unselfish love, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify the church having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word of God, so that in turn he might present the church to himself in glorious splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy, set apart for God, and blameless. Paul goes on to explain in verse 32 how marriage is a profound mystery. That's really modeled after the perfect union between Jesus Christ and his bride, which is the church. So here we get a sense of the deep, profound, sacrificial love that Jesus has for his church. There is no greater love on this planet than the love Jesus has for his church. The love he has for you and for me. John 3, 16, you know it all well. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Beautiful. John 15, 16, no one has greater love nor stronger commitment than to lay down his own life for his friends. So why did He lay down his life for us to pay the price for our sin, right? Sin has been and is humanity's greatest problem. It's our greatest flaw. We have all sinned, every single one of us, and our sin is a barrier to God. We need to be reconciled. To God. He's our creator. We were born to give him glory. That is our purpose as individuals and as his church. And so we need to be rescued from our sin. Rescued from the wrath and judgment of it and rescued from, from the guilt and the shame and the heaviness that the burden of sin places on us. So in the beginning... 
And now you might be thinking, aren't we in Revelation here? Aren't we looking at the end this morning? And yes, we're looking at the end, but in order to appreciate the end, we have to understand the beginning. So I want to revisit it for just a moment here. In the beginning, humanity lived with God in a blissful paradise. I like to use the Hebrew word shalom, which basically means peace, health, and wholeness. So humanity lived with God in shalom. We know that shalom was broken when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And ever since then, there became that barrier between humanity and God. God is so holy that our sin separates us from him. Now, the Old Testament is filled with examples of God's love and God's faithfulness. It's filled with prophecies, that is, messages, mes- messages from God's messengers um, to remind people over and over again of the holiness and the love and the faithfulness of God. God would remind them to turn from their sin and follow him. And they needed to be reminded um, of this because they faced temptations and pressures to go their own way just like we all do today and so there were times where they listened to these messengers and other times where they didn't and there were consequences for that there was this repeated cycle of following God turning from God and coming back to God God's prophets often portrayed this through examples of a straying wife with a faithful husband, God being the faithful husband. The book of Hosea portrays this explicitly for us. Finally, in the New Testament, out of his great love for us, God sends Jesus who takes on the sins of the world once and for all. And all of our mistakes All of our failures, um, our addictions, our rebellion, corruption, deceitfulness, our depravity, Jesus died for it all. He died for it all so that shalom could be restored, so that we could be reconciled to God. 1 John 1, verse 9. This is the Amplified Translation again. If we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just, true to his own nature and promises, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us continually from all unrighteousness, our wrongdoing, everything not in conformity with his will and purpose. By his death and resurrection, Jesus solves our greatest problem our greatest flaw, and he paves the way for us to have a relationship with God. And I can't explain it any better than scripture can, and so let's hear it from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 to 21. This is the Amplified translation again. It's my favorite translation, can't you tell? (laughs) Paul says this, so from now on, We regard no one from a human point of view according to worldly standards and values. 
Though we have known Christ from a human point of view, now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, grafted in, joined to him by faith in him as Savior, he is a new creature, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things, the previous moral and spiritual condition, have passed away. Behold, new things have come, because spiritual awakening brings a new life. But all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, making us acceptable to him, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, so that by our example we might bring others to him. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, but canceling them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that is, restoration to favor with God. So we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. We, as Christ's representatives, plead with you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made Christ, who knew no sin, to judicially be sin on our behalf, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That is, we would be made acceptable to him and placed in a right relationship with him by his gracious, loving kindness. What I want to say now is this. All along, all throughout church history, Jesus has been patiently and passionately preparing, that is, reconciling, saving, rescuing his people, his church, his bride, for the ultimate wedding day. Our passage of scripture gives us the future picture of this, my friends. It's the wedding day. It's the wedding feast. So let's look at it again from the Amplified Translation this time. Then I heard something like the shout of a vast multitude and like the boom of many pounding waves and like the roar of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, the Omnipotent, the Ruler of all, reigns. Let us rejoice and shout for joy. Let us give him glory and honor for the marriage of the Lamb has come at last. And his bride, the redeemed, has prepared herself. She has been permitted to dress in fine, lizen, fine linen, dazzling white and clean, for the fine linen signifies the righteous acts of the saints, the ethical conduct, personal integrity, moral courage, and godly character of believers. And I just want to add that this is the result and reflection of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me further, these are the true and exact words of God. And so, this, this is what we're living for. This is what we're living for. The day when we will be in perfect union 
with Jesus. It's going to be a joyful celebration. Amen? Amen. It's going to be a joyful celebration. So to help us gain a full understanding and better appreciation for this term, Bride of Christ, we have to consider the historical and cultural context and experiences here. So we need to consider what a traditional Jewish um, wedding ceremony or engagement process looked like in the first century, because this is where our metaphor stems from. We need a first century Jewish cultural understanding of a wedding here, not a 21st Western world um, understanding, because they're very different. They're very different. So this is my attempt in sharing with you what I have learned about uh, this subject. And I learned this through a Bible study I did a few years ago um, that offered teaching around all the different feasts in the Bible. And the author and the presenter was Joe Armoral, if you're ever interested in, in reading up on this topic. It was a really good study. So in first century Jewish culture, um, the groom basically does everything when it comes to the wedding. That's already different, right? The, the, groom, the groom does absolutely everything. I would have wanted Fred <laughs> to do everything when it came to our wedding. But this is how it worked back then. The groom did it all, all the planning, all the preparations, the groom took care of it. And so I'll try and explain the steps here for you. First, the groom would go to the village where the bride lived, and he would meet her father, and he'd establish a covenant, and in it he would explain very detailed how he was going to provide and care for his bride. And so if the father liked this covenant and this what this groom had put together, then the groom would have to pay a price for his bride. And it wasn't a set price. It was basically, how high are you willing to pay for my daughter? How, how badly do you want to marry her, right? And so he didn't want to lowball it, right? He, that wouldn't send the right message. So <laughs> let's pause here for a second, and let's parallel this with the Passover meal Jesus shares with his disciples in the upper room because he is establishing a new covenant here and he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he passes it around and said this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the sins of many he presents a new covenant to his disciples and he's offering to pay the price for them with his life. Back to the first century Jewish wedding. When the covenant and payment was accepted by the bride's father, they then entered into this betrothal process. And the bride's father would go into the room where his daughter was sitting, and he would say to her, all is prepared. Everything's been arranged. And then he would leave, and he would close the door. The daughter then would have prepared a meal, and the groom would then go and knock on the door. The bride would open the door partway, 
And that was the groom's cue that he was invited into the room and they would sit and they would share a meal together. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and continually knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. Restore him and he with me. The groom then would pour a glass of wine and offer it to the bride when she takes it and drinks from it. That is the moment when the wedding agreement is sealed. It's a done deal at this point. Back to the Passover. When Jesus passes the cup around the table, this is where the relationship between the groom, Jesus, and the bride, the church, begins. The groom then would go back to his father's house and he would prepare a home for his bride there. And it would take anywhere from 12 to 18 months for him to complete this. The bride doesn't know when he's going to come. Anywhere from 12 to 18 months. We know from scripture that before Jesus' death and ascension, he comforts his disciples and he tells them, I am going to prepare a place for you. I will come back for you. Remember this? This was a part of our I Will series that we looked at in the summer together. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back for you, Jesus says. Now, too, interestingly enough, the groom didn't have the authority to decide when to go and get his, pro his bride. The groom's father actually had that authority. Jesus. When he teaches about the future and his return, he says no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Be alert, be on guard. You do not know when that time will come, he says. So the bride, she doesn't know when her groom will be back. Anywhere from 12 to 18 months, she had to be ready for when he was going to come. We all think when Bell or Rogers says between eight to four is <laughs> too much time, right? This was 12 to 18 months. She had to be ready for all that time for when he might arrive for her. Finally, when everything was prepared and ready on the groom's end, the Jewish father would give his son his blessing to go and get his bride. The groom and his friends then would then go to the bride's village. They would blast a trumpet outside the village gate. And the bride would hear this and she would get up and she would go and she would see her groom. The gates would open to the village. The groom would come in and he'd take his bride by the arm. And they would leave together and go to the father's house. Where they would share in the wedding supper. And this is the time of celebration. This, my friends, is what's behind 
our passage of scripture today. This passage from Revelation is the prophetic word inviting us to partake in the future wedding feast with the Lamb, Jesus Christ, as his beloved bride. We are all invited to this feast, every single one of us. Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's coming back for us. Revelation 22, 17 says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus invites us all to the table. He invites us all to the feast. Have we accepted his invitation? You might think, I'm not worthy of this. You don't know where I've been or what I've done. You don't know the baggage I carry. Or you might think, I'm not ready for this. I've got to clean myself up first. Um, I can't accept this invitation yet. That's not how it works, my friends. That is not how Jesus' invitation works. The moment we say yes to Jesus, we are forgiving. He paid the price for all of our sins so that we could be worthy of this invitation so that we can be a part of his glorious and wonderful bride. Ephesians 5 again. I want to share it again. From verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church, without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. This is who we become in Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. This is who we become in Jesus, holy and without fault. Jesus gave up his life for the church to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him come. Take the free gift of the water of life. You'll see to my left here, we're set up for a feast. And so I'd like to invite you this morning to come and share in our symbolic feast. And I invite you to come as an expression of your acceptance of Christ's invitation to the wedding feast. 
come and receive out of gratitude for his forgiveness and grace in your life. Come and receive out of unity as members of Christ's body and as a beloved part of his bride. So the worship team, they're going to come and they're going to lead us in a time of worship. And as they come, I invite you to come and share with us, to come and eat and drink at the table.